all about. Good morning. Okay, I am excited. I am a bowl of nerves as well because though I've preached in the past, I have been on a sabbatical for a whole year, so I feel a little rusty. Um, but interesting thing um, in God's providence, this table, this pulpit, right, is the same one that I used and learned to preach on in Philadelphia. So all these years ago, so it's very, I mean, the first day I got here and I said, oh my gosh, it's this table again. Like, so, but I thought here it is for me to hold on to, right? So that is God's goodness to us. So we're in Daniel chapter six. Why don't you turn in your Bibles to this chapter so I can read it in our hearing and then we can dive into God's word together. Wonderful story of Daniel six. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three presidents of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give an account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other presidents and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the presidents and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint of any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these presidents and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the prefects, the satraps, the counselors, and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed a document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, the thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king, and he said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. 
And the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then, at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions' mouths, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Y'all, some of y'all know, okay, we're going to do that again. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. So we should always give thanks to God for his word. Um, that's a good old, I'm a churchy person by nature. You probably have gathered that by now. Um, so I may use some expressions that you say, what in the world? And some of y'all are going to say amen. So, but... So we are in Daniel 6, and we have been talking about a beautiful resistance. And this sermon, I like titles, so our sermon is Distinction as Beautiful Resistance. Distinction as Beautiful Resistance. Now, to lead into that, what I mean by that, I have to tell you a story. So this is a story from way back in the day when I was just a wee lad, 17 years old. Yeah, long time ago. Dark ages, horse and buggy, all that kind of stuff. And so in that time, I was raised in between the best of both worlds. I was raised between the frozen chosen. I was a Baptist and we were cessationists, which means we did not believe in any of the sign gifts, any of that showy Pentecostal stuff. No, no, no. That was my mom, the house that I grew up in. On the other side, my aunt, my mom's sister, was a five-fold Pentecostal. So she believed in apostles, prophets, teachings, and evangelists, and there was a devil behind every doorknob and a spirit that needed to rebuke out of things. And I grew up in between these worlds. But also, in, in that particular world, with my Pentecostal aunt, there was this group of saints. I called them the Holy Rollers. And they were older than me, and they were holy people of God. They loved the Lord. And the Lord had really delivered them from a lot of things. One of the things in my aunt's story is my aunt had been um, in prison and had gotten to know some of these people because this church that they came from did a lot of prison ministry. 
And these people would come out of prison. The Lord had saved them from the streets, saved them from drugs, saved them from alcohol, saved them from a host of other things, and they were on fire. And so one of the things that they did is they went back into the prisons to preach in the place that they had been delivered from. And I remember one particular evening, I'm hanging out at my aunt's house with my cousins. I'm 17 years old, just trying to enjoy my life. And she says, tonight, we're going to the youth penitentiary, and you're coming with us. I was like, no way, okay? I'm too cute for prison ministry. Lord, use me anywhere else but there. But you know how the Lord is. (laughs) So before the night was over, I was sandwiched in this car (laughs) going to the youth prison, and I was not happy. I was like, knees knocking, teeth chattering, not thrilled. We get there, and I'm like, Lord, why am I here? Why am I here? So we get there. As we come through the doors of the prison, I remember there was a huge glass wall where, and behind that wall was the um, gym, and there were people, you know, inmates were playing, and all of a sudden, a fight happens. I see a person get thrown against the glass, and I say, yes, they're going to shut it down, and I'm going home. (laughs) I'm not going to have to go in. But unfortunately, of course, the security guard is like, no, come on. I'm like, oh, no, this is just, there is no getting out of this. So we go in, we come into these, these two rooms. So they break up in between the male and the female, my uncle and some of the other men from the church, and the women go to another room to minister to the girl. So they decide to take it easy on me, no disrespect. And they say, okay, we'll put you with the ladies, you know, tonight you'll go in the room. So we go in there, and I'm, in, and I'm just hanging out in the cut in the back, just, you know, okay. My aunts, they're preaching to these girls. They're loving on them. They're hugging them. They're praying for them. They're ministering to them. And then all of a sudden, while I'm standing in the back, I see my uncle come out of the boys' room, knocking on the glass. You, come here. I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. Not the boys' room. Please, no. And he's calling me, and I'm hemming and hawing. Me? You know, so... So all of a sudden, he's like, you now. So I go, like I say, knees knocking, teeth chattering. I walk into this room, probably about 40 young men in this room, about my age, particularly a bunch who are 17 years old, and their mouths all go, and my uncle was a firebomb preacher. That was Uncle James. See, I told you, the Lord had something waiting for you tonight, brother, to put this, shut your mouth today, close it now. You know, he said something along those lines. And the young man that they were witnessing to said, you guys are old and you've served the Lord and you've had your fun, you've ran these streets. We're young, there's no young people who love God or serve God or who fear God or who are into this stuff like you. That young man said that. Because my aunt and uncle had been ministering there for three months. And a young person, had they had never met another young person like my aunt and uncle and this church. And they said, there's nobody who serves God the way you do that's our age. And that particular night, the Lord had divinely positioned me there to shut his mouth. (laughs) And so my uncle said, This is my 17-year-old nephew. He loves God just like we do. Nephew, tell him your testimony. 
I don't remember what I said. <laughs> I couldn't tell you. But what I will tell you is it was a moment that I walked away from that I realized that God had divinely positioned me in a space and a place to be a witness. That God knew what that young man was going to say before he ever said it. And God had positioned me to be there to witness to him that, yes, there are some people who are serving God who are your age. And gave me an opportunity to preach the gospel to that community. Sadly, I never went back. But I never forgot the lesson that God taught me. What does that have to do with it? It's because I believe that over the course of the story of Daniel, this is a little bit of what we see, that God reserves the right to position his witnesses anywhere and everywhere. And we see from the life of Daniel that he's been divinely positioned to serve as God's witness over the reign of at least three empires, at least two empires and a plethora of rulers. Daniel has aged from 19 to 90 in captivity through Babylon, persevering as a faithful servant preserved by a faithful God. Yet an overarching theme prevails in the lives of Daniel and his faithful fellow counterparts, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And here's the theme, that God demonstrates his distinction over and above all other gods through a distinct people on mission as his witnesses in every age. That that's the theme that we sort of see, that God demonstrates his distinction over all other gods through a distinct people on mission, serving as his witnesses in every age. Because Daniel has been in Babylon for generations. And every time, sometime, time after time, God keeps giving him the microphone to say something or do something through his distinction. Why distinction? I say it because of this. Two verses. Sorry, I didn't, have, I didn't put it on the slide, but I'll give it to you. O come, let, it's uh, Psalm 95, 1 through 3, and it says this. O come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving and make a joyful noise unto him with song. Why? For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. This is what the Hebrews believed. And everywhere that God sent them, they carried this testimony that our God is a great God and he's the great king above all gods. I'll give you one more. Psalm 96, 4 through 5. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Why? For, where's my verse go? Okay. All the gods of the peoples are as worthless idols, but our God made the heavens. God is in the business of distinguishing himself amongst all the pagan and false gods of the world that men worship. And do you know how he does that? I would love to maybe ask you to take out your cell phone and turn that camera around, and that's how he does it. <laughs> through his witnesses, through you. I pray that by the time we finish reading through this story, we will not despise the distinction that God has put on his people. That God desires to distinguish us in the world for the purpose of witness. What does it say in the New Testament? For you are a peculiar people. That's strange, weird, unordinary. Or in the text, it's extraordinary. 
It says Daniel had an extraordinary spirit on him. God was on mission to make this truth known throughout the earth through his people and the positions of his people everywhere that he places them provides a perfect opportunity for him to demonstrate that distinction. In Daniel's case, God is doing this across generations and national leaders. But over the course of history, he is doing this in every age. So I would add, I would update that slide if there was a slide, and I'd say God demonstrates his distinction over all other gods through a distinct people on mission, serving as his witnesses in every age. And in Christ, he's taking applications. Now, the main point is not for us to dare to be a Daniel, but to believe in Daniel's God. We've seen that already. But in order to believe in Daniel's God, we must pay attention to Daniel's witness because it is by that very witness that God is distinguishing himself as the only true and living God. By his God, Daniel has transcended the reign of two major empires, Babylonian to Medo-Persia. That's where we come in today. They have come and gone, but Daniel remains. And even secular rulers are being shown to be under the sovereign power of the sovereign God. And, God, and here's the thing. God doesn't go around his witnesses to get to himself. He points right through them. And that's what God showed me in that night. That he's, he, he, his desire is to make himself known, but he's going to do that through us through a people that he has created, that he has invested his spirit and his presence in. We pay attention to the Old Testament. I like this quote. It says, the Old Testament was written not simply for remembrance, but also to serve as a paradigm for future behavior. The narratives of Daniel in particular are shaped to serve as life examples for later generations of God's people. That's us. That means we have the ability to look back at what God did in their day and see and anticipate how God is going to move and operate in our day. What does Hebrews tell us? For Jesus Christ is the same today, yesterday, and forevermore. Daniel's story in redemptive history enables us to understand how to faithfully flourish in a society Faithfully filter in culture as exiles while resisting the temptation to become hostiles or assimilationists. What do I mean by that? As hostiles to culture and society, we remain only critical and antagonistic towards. We withdraw and we judge. However, with no engagement. As assimilationists, though, meaning we conform, we just do what the world does and go along with it, we have a different reaction. We forfeit the beautiful resistance of our distinction from culture, and thus it leaves us nothing to offer it. Because then we're just all the same. We're all in the mishmash all together. In both instances, we are infected by our culture instead of influencing it with kingdom values. But God has worked no other way in history but by his witnesses. In the Old Testament, it was the Hebrews operating as a people of God with the power of God for the purpose of God. In the New Testament, it's no different. It is us, the church, who is the people of God, with the power of God, by the presence of God, for the purpose of God. The church is God's answer of distinction in the world today. 
It's the way that he is making his will known and affected is how he's making his will known and affected in the earth. And that's why I remind us that in Christ, God is taking applications for witnesses because the idols of our culture are constantly over-promising and under-delivering. I could give you many personal stories from my life, and by now you probably have your own of a nice little idol that you believe that lied in the end, that promised you this and left you hanging. This brings us right to our first point from our distinguished brother Daniel, a distinction in character. I think we see four major areas of distinction happening in this text. And the first one that we see is a distinction in character. How I would define that is God's distinct nature is reflected by his distinct witnesses as they stand out in culture. God's distinct nature is reflected by his distinct witnesses as they stand out in culture. Daniel's distinction among the pagans gives opportunity for the true God to be promoted over the false. We see it starting in verse 1. It pleased the rise to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom and over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Where are we? New king, Nebuchadnezzar, Nem, Belshazzar, they're gone. New king, Darius the Mede, new empire, Medo-Persian empire, has taken over. Same old Daniel is still here. And guess what? He's rising to the top like the cream of the crop. He just, you know, he's Meek Mill. I'm all the way up. Nothing can stop me. He's MC Hammer. Can't touch this. Do, 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 do. Okay. That's, you know, got to get both generations there. <laughs> right? That's what's happening. Nebuchadnezzar is dead. Belshazzar is dead. The Babylonian regime is done. Daniel has served in captivity for decades now. And here's another thing. Think about his distinction. Daniel has served in captivity for decades while his nation is under divine discipline. Remember that. <laughs> They've been kicked out of their land for disobeying God, and they're in bondage to another nation, and he's still faithful and distinct while his nation is under divine discipline. That's a picture that even in the world, as we are operating as Christians, that even when we can be under the loving discipline of our God, there is still a demand for there to be distinction. Daniel's reputation and his work ethic have obviously preceded him as despite the changes in rulership, he still wanted the top. They set up 120 satraps, which was basically a satrap was a protector of the kingdom. These, on top of these protectors of the kingdom, they put three counselors or three presidents, and Daniel becomes one. He just keeps rising to the top because of the work ethic that, he's, that he carries. This is a main proof of his faithfulness. Daniel has heeded the word of the fellow prophet Jeremiah to seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Doesn't that sound just like being a protector of the kingdom? Daniel is filling this satrap role to the T. The pro his brother, Prophet Jeremiah, who was alive at the same time, received a word from the Lord that said, hey, <laughs> seek the welfare of the city and pursue it, for in it is your welfare. And that's what he's doing. Daniel is good for the nation. He's good for the economy. 
He is fulfilling this word to the T, and it keeps resulting in promotion for him. Vodi Bakum says this, Oh, that the mark of Christ on our lives and our walk with God as redeemed individuals bought with a price, the precious blood of Christ, would live our lives in such a manner that even in workplaces that have nothing to do with the gospel, people would look upon our lives and see the faithfulness of our God turning out in our faithfulness to our God, overflowing from the faithfulness of our God, and be blessed because there's nobody else that they'd rather have for their position. When I got my job, I work at the Silver Cloud down in Point Ruston. And when I got my, when I was being interviewed for it, um, they were asking me some personal questions, you know, just to get to know me. And they said, oh, you're a Christian. And I said, yes. And the assistant general manager says, then I expect you to be a nice person then. And I said, oh, yeah, I got that. <laughs> Galatians 5:22 to 23, for the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, meekness, temperance, gentleness, self-control, right? But kindness is in there. And I want that to show up so that I would love for the workforce in this country to look at the world and say, if we need nice people, well, gee, we got to hire us some Christians around here. <gasps> Wouldn't that point to our God that they say, you know, in the finance industry, we only need Christians because they got integrity. Like, <laughs> would to God that that would be the impression that we would leave on the world? Because where's that going to point? Right back to our God. I'm so glad you asked. Let me show you the way. <laughs> right? But here's a catch. Daniel's also done this by not forsaking his God, but by maintaining a devoted intimacy with Yahweh that we will soon see later. Daniel doesn't sacrifice his love of his God to better love the community God places him in. No, his commitment to the worship of the one true God leads him into truly loving the people that God has placed around him and not leaving his God behind in order to love the people God called him to lead. Because I think that's a real temptation in our current culture now, that we're being, there's a deception that tells us we have to leave God in order to love people. But we see the total opposite, that Daniel's rightful placement of God as primary in his life leads him into genuinely seeking the welfare of the city and pursuing it. Verse 3, then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. I love it. It says this Daniel, that Daniel continually distinguished himself. It just means he stood out. He was a cut above the rest. And in Aramaic, where that word distinguished, the word it comes from is it would come, they would use it in terms of describing a landscape. When you looked at an ancient city landscape and you would see the buildings, the shape, and then you'd see like a big dome or spire. And that let you know that that was the house of worship it would stand out against the skyline and you would know exactly where to go in order to rightfully worship and find God or the gods in that time. Isn't that interesting that amongst this culture, Daniel is standing out like a house of worship as he distinguishes himself, pointing to the worship of the true God. 
says, because an excellent spirit was in him. This is a means of result of his inner characters, inner, inner character traits and qualities. Daniel has skills. And we see from chapter one that these skills came from God, that when they were brought into captivity, it says that God gave them special discerning and skill to be above the rest in the way that they operated because an excellent spirit was in him. And the interesting is, though the Babylonians couldn't put their finger on what the source of his distinction was, they kept saying, this man seems to be in touch with the holy gods. <laughs> I pray that we would lead such lives that even when people can't figure out what's so different about you, oh, maybe it's that Jesus guy. I said this before, that we pray and hope that as people bump into us, they would have opportunities to bump into Christ, bump into God through our distinction in the world. Just as Daniel was distinguished from all the other captives in chapter one, all the other sages and wise men, magicians and enchanters in chapter two, so he is now distinguished again from all the other sea traps and political leaders of the new regime. Verse four. Then the high officials and satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint of any fault in him. Oh, man, he's untouchable. He is squeaky clean. Can you think of a political leak? Well, we won't start there. Anyway, <laughs> those commercials are getting ready to start hitting the airwaves and the TVs again. Slam this person, and here's what they did in college, and they're, ooh, don't you vote for him because he stepped on the cat's tail. Well, they say worse than that, but there's none of this on Daniel. No dirt, no fault or complaint can be found against him. And it's so hard not to jump to Jesus in this text, but I can't help it. Because as New Covenant readers, we have to recognize this, that all the characters and systems and situations in the Old Testament are finger pointing forward. All the characters, situations, and systems in the Old Testament are fingers pointing forward. They are pointing to something. Hebrews says, right, that these things are all mere shadows. When if followed, will lead to the substance. Colossians says, and the substance is Christ. That all these shadows, these things are shadows that are pointing to the substance. They are pointing to Christ. I think as I read this charge about Daniel, them being unable to find any charge, I can't think of what Pilate says about Jesus. I find no fault in this man. They've got no dirt on Daniel. What does Jesus say? He said, the devil is coming and he has nothing in me. Meaning he ain't got nothing on me. No dirt. I've got no itch that he can scratch. And that's what we're discovering about Daniel's distinction. They have nothing on him. Daniel is so clean. And what does that result in? It says Darius sought to give him the whole kingdom. He wanted to put Daniel on the tippity top. Daniel is so clean of vices that his enemies have to craftily bring him down by his virtues. So what do they say? We can't find anything. We can't catch him on his bads because he ain't got none. So we got to catch him on his goods. We've got to create a conflict between the law of the king and the law of his God. But 
since we're talking so much about goods, here's another amazing thing about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. God doesn't just need your perfections to point to himself. God gets glory out of repentance. So God doesn't just need our, our goodness, which comes from him anyway, to point to himself. Through Daniel, we see this picture of near perfection. God also gets glory in our repentance. That points back to his mercy. You know why? Because a pardoned soul is a monument of mercy. Everywhere that you see a forgiven person, you see God's mercy making a monument. If you are a forgiven person, you are a monument of God's mercy. Because he didn't have to... <laughs> Do that. But we have his sure promise from his word that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We are assured of mercy in Jesus. Two. Oh, sorry. Oh, little poppy. Thank you. Okay. Keeps going back. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, brother, pastor. <laughs> All righty. Two, a distinction in expectations. This is a big one. It's because I believe distinction will also draw something that we have to be prepared for, disapproval. Distinction will draw disapproval. It will draw a target on the back of the righteous in a world of unrighteousness which we must suspect as Daniel and his fellow saints did. Why? Because light will shine in the midst of darkness. We're all complaining that the earth is getting darker, but what a great opportunity for the light of Jesus Christ to shine, for it to only shine that much brighter and that much more recognizable and that much more brilliant. One person said righteousness, or he says worldliness is that which makes sin seem normal and righteousness seem strange. Look how these verses transition for Daniel. It says, Daniel distinguishes himself, then these high officials and satraps came by agreement. You cannot be distinct in this world without expecting suffering. That's the point. I can't express how important this is in an age and culture where our commitment to our comforts and conveniences has distracted and detracted from a clear gospel. To quote Beth Moore, though we may be proud of not conceding to a prosperity gospel, in the West we have most definitely subscribed to a pampered gospel. We currently face the distorted gospel of self-actualization where gospel is all about fulfilling yourself, not denying yourself. It's becoming the best version of you while reducing Jesus to just another brand among many others ways to get there. But suffering works as a good sifter. That's why I love that line. We see suffering, you know, focus as a sifter when we think about what happened in chapter three with uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? They're in the fire and the king looks in there and what do they say? We're all here. <laughs> oh, we survived the fire. And I think suffering has that kind of effect on helping us discern the true gospel from the fake. 
And we must have this expectation in our lives if we're going to accept this challenge of distinction that the Lord has laid upon us. God's people will bear distinct expectation of self-denial, being hated for righteousness sake, the orchestration of wicked schemes or even oppressive legislation against them, against them, false accusations, the impotence of others to save themselves or you. I like that. Because the king's men made a fool of him in one day, saying you can be God for 30 days, as we'll see. Beware those or the danger of those who would convince us that we can be our even, that we can be our own gods or even gods over others. In the end, we shall surely make fools of ourselves. God's people will also experience or bear distinct expectation of being delivered over into the hands of unjust persecutors. Hmm. That happens in the New Testament to the captain of our faith. In Daniel's time, this distinction will point forward to a suffering savior. In our time, our distinct suffering for righteousness sake will point backward to the same God. We will find ourselves in continuity with our Hebrew ancestors, both pointing to one Christ from both ends of history. Daniel is before lions, before he's even in the lion's den. However, as Daniel beautifully resists by being a faithful witness over decades, a faithful God is put on display before pagan, before pagan rulers. The importance of sharing this or belaboring that point is so that we know our true heritage and inheritance in the faith. Heritage where we come from and who we come from in the faith. Inheritance what and whom we should expect as a result. If you're in Christ today, you come from those who have borne this distinct mark in history of expecting to suffer for righteousness' sake, but not without it translating into eventual glory. And the question is, whose glory? As I was working through my sermon notes and uh, Dawson and Ben were helping me, this came up in our conversation. Pastor Ben said it this way, if you're always being persecuted for your faith, you're probably not being very winsome. If you're not being persecuted, if you're never persecuted for your, your faith, you're probably not being faithful. There's a balance, or there should be, right? Which leads to our next point, a distinction in practices. God's people will witness and worship through distinct practices at any cost. Where do we see this? Verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Daniel just kept on keeping on. And so he just kept doing, he didn't do anything new. He just kept doing what he'd always done. Daniel's bold distinction has been built from more little decisions than big decisions. 
It's impossible to think that great and significant accomplishments can happen without small, consistent actions repeated over time. Daniel could face a den of lions at 90 because he could turn down a plate of food at 19. All his great feats were the harvest of small, consistent, repeated actions of faithfulness sown over a long period of time. We suppose that we will show up big for great moments which we have never prepared for, but Daniel shows up at big, big at times because he's been able to show up small regularly in his seemingly quiet devotion to God. And Daniel's adversaries know that they can't trip him up any other way but around his spiritual practices. They know that they can count on his impeccable integrity. I can see them out there, Facebook Live in him, you know, Snapchatting. Ooh, he's praying. There he is. Let's, let's wait till the king sees this. Daniel will not compromise. He will worship no matter the cost. And how tempting a compromise would have been for Daniel to have compromised would have been to forfeit on seeing God glorified in the distinct way that he is at the story's end. Daniel keeps God's first. In chapter 3, they told him who he had to worship, but this time around whom he cannot worship. This is a violation of the first commandment for him. So he continues doing what he always does. He doesn't swerve his, his consistent spiritual practices that he has performed almost for 70 years. And think about this. In captivity, 70 years, faithfulness, old man, and gets dumped in a lion's den. <laughs> they pass this law against him. I've thrown in the towel on God for less. <laughs> What a word this is to us. And it says he goes and he prays. His daily prayer, his first thing. He doesn't jump on Facebook. Ooh, they passed this injunction. Oh, we... He doesn't start a petition, get a placard, occupy the palace. No, no. He occupies heaven. <laughs> he demonstrates before God. And he does that by daily praying three times a day and obviously some sort of keeping in routine with the fast of his Hebrew tradition. He is served by his spiritual practices as he serves God through God's prescribed spiritual practices for him. Daniel is served by his spiritual practices as he serves God through the prescribed spiritual practices that God has for him. One of ours is right here, corporate worship. What does Hebrews say? Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together, as is the habit of some. We were sitting in Soma 201 last week, and I was thinking about, we were, you know, we were talking about, we, just for a brief second, about why we were here and, some sort of caveat for church membership. And I thought, why am I here? What is one of the reasons that I'm such a staunch believer in church membership and being committed and covenanted to be in life with people of faith? And I said, you know what? I need somebody to keep me from my sin. Because <laughs> there's going to be days when I'm going to want it. And I need a brother, sister. Oh, let us pray. <laughs> you know? 
That's what covenant community does for you. It's a place that you can borrow faith from when you're getting low. These are, do we see Daniel's spiritual practices and how they are serving him? And that gives us an opportunity for us to think about, God, what are the spiritual practices that you have prescribed for me that will serve me to serve you? Make sense? All right. As a distinct God preserves his saints, they persevere in being preserved. Daniel prayed and gave thanks which I think is one of a Christian's superpowers, the power of thanksgiving. You can open your shirt, and there's a big old T there. How do I know it? Paul said, in everything, not for everything, but in everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God concerning you in Christ Jesus. I always know what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to be giving thanks. I don't like this. In this, I can give thanks. Maybe not for this, but in this, I can give thanks. It says Daniel prayed and he gives thanks. On his knees in Babylon, while his nation is under divine discipline from God, praying to God after a lifetime of captivity, while facing the direction of the ruins of his beloved homeland, but he's still giving thanks. Daniel gives us a picture that prayer is not necessarily our aim at getting God to do our will, but rather God's means of enabling us to find the will of God and get in on that. To Daniel, God is still with him. He's only faithful because he's got a faithful God. His prayers are the expressions of his confidence and hope and his his situation, his worship will provide him the opportunity to witness to the highest degree. And Daniel will see a distinction in his rescue. We see what happens as we get to verses. Oh, where'd it go? Verse 16. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Daniel's worship positions him to witness to the ultimate degree. For doing right, he's going in the den. They take this now frail, 90-year-old man who has served the nation faithfully, been good for the empire all these years, and dump him in a den of lions to be eaten and torn alive. I think that's the perspective on the ground. But I think if we come up a little higher, there's something bigger that's going on here. There's a real contest happening between the gods of the Babylonians or the Medo-Persians and the God who is distinguishing himself as the only living and true God. Cyrus says this, Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually deliver you. There's some sort of expectation. 
and hope because this can be seen to be as not just a trial, but something as an ordeal. We remember these a little bit from the dark ages. And in the dark ages, sadly, one of the things that they did is it would be is if a person was accused of witchcraft, they would do this horrible, ridiculous thing where they would put a millstone around them and dump them in the river and say, if you're a witch, you'll drown. And if you're not, you'll float, right? You know, like, you're, okay, really? Like, you were, you were doomed. <laughs> like, there was no hope of survival except a miracle. And that's where our story takes us to. We see this distinction that has come. Daniel has this expectation. It winds up in suffering for him. That's exactly where, where he gets left. And now his bold distinction is positioning for his God to demonstrate himself with a miracle. For his witness. <laughs> Amen. So what happens next? Then at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. And he came near to the den where Daniel was. He cried out in a tone of anguish. The king couldn't even sleep through the night. But Daniel seems to have a sealy, posturepedic mattress in this den. <laughs> king couldn't eat, couldn't sleep. Tossing and turning, no entertainment. And he rushes to that tomb in the morning like some women we see in the New Testament early one Sunday morning go run into a tomb because their hero break of day king rose and went into haste to the den of lions as he came near to the den where Daniel was he cried out in a tone of anguish the king declared to Daniel oh Daniel servant of the living God has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions. Now, the reason why I referenced that term ordeal is because whenever you see the term the living God, what that is in reference to, it's the contested, the contested God. The living God comes from a term to mean that God is the only God capable of bearing that name because he's living. Every other God, other God is dead. And that's what's being put on display, that God is the living God. He's the only God that actually is. So when the king, so when Cyrus says, servant of the living God, God shows up and delivers his servant. And here's the distinction in the rescue. The distinction in Daniel's rescue is that Daniel's deliverance has a deliverance of a message to the nation tied to it. So much so that this king who references the living God makes a proclamation very soon. It says, oh, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God been able to deliver you? Jump down, and Daniel says, oh, king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Daniel said, I'm innocent before God, and I'm also innocent before you. And he survives this ordeal, this trial, 
this context because of the miracle that Yahweh performed in that den. And God shows himself. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And I think that's what empowered Daniel to suffer is Daniel wasn't trusting in his outcomes. He was trusting in his God. See, when we're trusting in our God, I think what gives us the ability and the strength to suffer is when we agree with God on the glory, we ultimately and eventually find peace with whatever his process. See, Daniel goes into the den, agreed with God that glorifying you is the most important thing. And however you have to do that, I'm going to be okay with in the end. When we agree on the glory, we eventually find peace with whatever the process. For some of us, that's not going to be down here. <laughs> Let me be very clear. We will not have peace with everything that God has done or does. Some of that peace will only be settled when we're face to face with him. King was exceedingly glad, so he commanded Daniel be taken up out of the den. Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found in him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. They, their children, <clears throat> and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. It's a hard scene, yes. Exactly that. Rough. But it shows us the severity of offending and rejecting and contesting the living God. And Daniel, wherever he is, is a witness for the living God. And therefore, when those men came after him, they weren't just coming after him. They were coming after his God. And that is the danger and the importance of the distinction of the gospel. If repentance is the only off-ramp off the highway to self-destruction, we can't block the way. We have to be clear <clears throat> in making that message and distinguishing that God from all false ways and avenues. The king gets delivered from their folly, and he gets a new song. Then the king Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. The king is like, I think there's only one. <laughs> and that is the beauty that God brings out of our worship and our witness. He gets to point right to himself and point people to the brilliance and hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And I think that that's what God wants to do with our lives. Acts 1 and 8 is one of my favorite verses, but you shall receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses. <laughs> In Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost regions of the world. Now we can't control how we get to witness. <laughs> I couldn't control winding up in that, pre in that prison that night. Well, I could have, but, well, the Lord, he made me. They made me. They were bigger than me. Anyway, <laughs> and I was a kid. I couldn't say no. Those were the olden days. You couldn't say no to your parents. And their own. But anyway, but it was, we don't always get to determine the way, the particular ways in which we shall witness for the Lord. But the good news is he's taking applications in Christ. And if we agree with him on the glory, we'll eventually find peace with whatever the process. Amen? As I think about that, I think about the big hope, the parallels in this story are just too alarming for me. <laughs> I can't help but see Jesus reading this book. 2,000 years ago, there was another man sent from God. On him was found an excellent spirit as well. There was no fault in him either. He too was de a devout worshiper of the highest degree and of the utmost impeccable integrity. And the king of the universe, just like Darius, sought to give the whole entire kingdom over to him. For he was distinguished among others. But a wicked throng of the synagogue of Satan and society unjustly persecuted and prosecuted him. They killed him. He too was cast into a pit for three days. Darkness, silence, disciples defeated, mission depleted. A guard set about the door like Daniel, a stone was rolled over the tomb, sealing his fate, and a seal and signet upon it. No admittance allowed and no exit permitted. But three days later, an angel rolled the stone away. God delivered him alive again, just, be, just like in Daniel's case, because no fault could be found in Jesus. And he's the one we're declaring to you today. That's the point. God has set in history this story of Daniel to be a big finger forward to us today. It's by the preview of Daniel's witness that we get a picture of what the Lord Jesus Christ will look like and one of the ways we were able to recognize him when he showed up. And I hope in some way through my preaching, the picture's been made a little bit clearer today. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for being the only true and living God. There is no God but you. And you desire to make yourself known. You have revealed yourself to us. We're here because you've shown yourself to us. Some of us may even be here in pursuit of getting to know you better. But we thank you for who you are and for what you've done. Lord, I pray you take the truth of your word, clean up the parts I messed up, and reveal your word clearly to your people that you will fortify us as a beautiful resistance in the city of Tacoma and everywhere else that you place us and take us. God, show us how to resist by not despising the distinction that you have placed on our lives. 
You are a big God. You are the king above all gods. Lead us into the true worship and knowledge of you for all that you are. In Jesus' name, amen.